This is episode 309. Do you think factory farming is a good thing? What comes to mind? Dirty, cheap, toxic, unethical, all of those terrible words. And on the other end of the spectrum, when you hear about regenerative agriculture, do you think butterflies, rainbows and unicorns? On this episode, we chat with two farmers that are four and five generations deep about farming myths, like the idea that cows are the world's biggest carbon problem, or that factory farming is inherently bad. We also talk to the idea that food labelling is intentionally misleading consumers and making the farmer look bad, and the reality that regenerative agriculture isn't all that it's always cracked up to be. This is one of those eye-opener episodes, and I think you're going to learn a lot about food and where it comes from, farming, and the reality and breadth of the industry that unfortunately gets painted with a very broad brush. So, let's dive in. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? I hope you're having a good day, and I'm hopeful that Tara, Natalie, and myself are about to make it a whole lot better as we inject your brain with some farming goodness. So this year in 2023, it has been and is my mission to coach 500 people to stop the binge eating and savage self-talk cycle so they can lose weight whilst feeling in control and without restriction along the way. And a part of the work that I do with behavior change, binge eating and emotional eating is also the physical aspect, the food, the nutrition, the stuff we put in and on our bodies. And you might have heard me say as a general food guide that you should look at your plate and if it looks like it came from a farm, you're moving in the right direction. But what about that farm where the food came from? What are their farming practices? Are they healthy? Are they ethical, toxic, unsustainable? Is this food truly healthy? There's a lot to unpack where our food, about where our food comes from and why I want to introduce you to Natalie Kavorik and Tara Vander Dusen, whom are the co-hosts of the Discover Ag docuseries, as well as the amazing podcast called Discover Ag. Tara is an environmental scientist and fifth-generation dairy farmer, and Natalie is a pharmacist and a fourth-generation rancher, which for Australians, a ranch is a cattle farm. (laughs) These wonderful women are agriculture advocates who have been debunking farming myths and correcting misinformation about the dairy and cattle industry for over 10 years. Together, they've fostered a community of over 240,000 people, spoken on stages across the globe, and empowered a community to reconnect to the agriculture industry and understand more about the hands that feed us. Because I, too, think that we are far too removed from knowing where our food came from, I'm hopeful that today's conversation will bring you closer to knowing exactly where your food comes from. So, Natalie, Tara, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, we're excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. It's um such a it's a unique scenario to I guess have this conversation because sitting down talking to farmers that are women is obviously not something that is the default thought in someone's brain when somebody says fifth generation fourth generation farmers, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that is one of the things that uh, Natalie and I actually try to bring to our podcast is somewhat of a millennial women perspective to food and farming. So it'll be a little bit different twist than maybe what you would find on um, two men co-host podcast. Yeah, good. Bring on the millennial vibes. We're all hanging out in that that era. So I'm (laughs) all for it. (laughs) So one one thing that I want to start with um, is that 
living in this world of farming, growing up in this world of farming, obviously you went on this journey and this experience which led to a moment where you both decided, possibly before you knew it, knew each other, where you decided I need to be public about the truth. And I, I can actually relate to that a lot because the whole reason that this podcast exists and is called How to Not Get Sick and Die is because after working in a cancer hospital, I got to a point where I felt the public was being misled with health information and that food had a lot more to do with it and the sun and you know sleep and all of those different things that Western medicine doesn't acknowledge. And so I had this moment where I was like, I'm so passionate about this message. I'm going to create a podcast and tell the world. And we're at like 300 episodes later. So I'm wondering, what were the culmination of epiphanies or triggers that led to you saying, right, that's it, I'm taking this public? Yeah, I can go first. So I, um, when I got my degree in environmental science, I didn't necessarily see myself coming back to the farm. So I just very much immersed myself in more like urban setting, urban life. Um, as life would have it, I ended up moving back to my hometown and marrying a dairy farmer just down the road from my parents and ended up dairy farming with him and his family. And as I was working as an environmental consultant on dairies, I feel like I was seeing more and more, you know, misinformation around agriculture and specifically like cattle's impact on the environment, dairy's impact on the environment. And I just felt like I was like fighting little tiny battles in the comment section of Facebook every time I got on there, which is just a horrible place for anyone to be. And so I was just like, why not start using social media to, you know, my advantage and be able to create my own platform where I can share the messages I want to share, the facts, the resources, um, and just the day-to-day life of what our dairy farm is like. And so that's really what led me to start sharing. And then I'll let Natalie kind of jump in and then we can get into kind of how we ended up coming together for our podcast. Yeah. So a little different than Tara, because I feel like she got online very intentionally to do, you know, the advocation portion that you guys are speaking about. Mine was a little more innocent and serendipitous. So I actually, um, as you mentioned, I got my degree in pharmacy. So again, didn't foresee I would be sitting here, but when I, um, married my husband, I ended up stepping away from full-time pharmacy and just practicing part-time. And so I was looking for something to kind of fill that extra time I had in my days now. And so I actually started direct-to-consumer beef business. And my partner at the time, we knew we needed you know, a connection to get strangers to buy beef from us online. And so ultimately we were like, obviously it's going to be social media. So that was my original introduction. And that is where I started seeing the misinformation. I think before that, I was very almost in my bubble that you can kind of fall into when you're in perspective industries. You know, I grew up in ag, my neighbors were ag. I've always kind of lived in more ag places within the States. And so I I don't think I was aware of kind of the conversations that were taking a place and some of the perceptions that people were having around food until I got online. And then that's when I was like, oh gosh, I really need to like step up and start, you know, quote unquote advocating. And so I made that transition from the direct and super beast business to kind of doing what Tara and I are doing now with our podcast, Discover Ag. And when you jumped online, was that when the social media world said, have you met Tara? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, pretty quickly. I feel like Instagram was like, oh, two like female farmer ranchers like here meet um you know how it is they feel like if you uh tell your phone something it seems like it it delivers something to you nowadays totally yeah so we were connected via like an instagram um chat group kind of and that was really the start of like our friendship and then it just evolved and grew uh we ended up you know obviously talking offline we met in person um and then 
fairly quickly, quickly after meeting in person, we realized like a lot of similarity, a lot of similarities, a lot of synergies that we have together and ended up launching the Discover Ag podcast. And kind of going back to some of the first points we made, I feel like the more I get involved online, the more I see on social media and just in the world we're living in, the more fear there is around food in the grocery store, um, especially, you know, when it comes to like the meat and dairy aisle. And so we wanted people with Discover Ag to be able to listen, learn more about where their food comes from and ultimately make the right choice that was best for them and really remove that like fear and food shaming that we see, I think, so often on the internet. Yeah, I think one of the problems, and I say this as a nutritionist who's I would consider myself non-dogmatic, is that we've seen this real cult religion vibe that kind of comes with diet labels now. Like I am keto, you know, defines somebody and how they spend their time or I am vegan and obviously all of the the things that we can possibly talk about here in regards to their beliefs about animal advocacy and protection and safety. And it says something about who they are and how they live their lives. And, and I think that's so destructive, not only to possibly the the truth about the farming industry, but just people's psychology of not going towards situations that are actually optimal for them because of a set of often misleading belief systems. Yeah, I really think we're at a kind of a unique place where, as you said, people have almost melded their food beliefs as like part of who they are and almost like a religious approach. Like it makes up who I am. This is what I believe. I cannot steer and, you know, outside voices or opinions are definitely wrong if it's different than mine. And like you said, it is really starting to have impacts. Um, I think for everyone involved, it's starting to have on-farm impacts for producers. It's starting to have body impacts for consumers, you're starting to see basically the whole chain um, come to these like ripple effects from kind of this odd place we are with food and the conversations around it. And kind of like to further take that one step, I do think that part of the problem is that we live in a place in society where like headlines and sound bites have completely dominated all conversations and they have really taken the nuance out of basically conversations. I mean, one of my favorite quotes is that sound bites is the enemy of conversation. And I think that's really happened to the food system. And it's really unfortunate how people will see a headline like, you know, cows are killing the planet or seed oils are bad or like whatever it is. And they'll just take that verbatim instead of being like, okay, let me look into this. Does this apply? Is this something I believe? Is this something I want to investigate further? You know, like I feel like we've kind of lost that initiative and we're just see a headline, we make that change and then we're kind of rooted in that now. Yeah, I think that's so true. People, I think one of the good things about this podcast conversation and all podcast conversations is that it's long form content. It's like it's a complete idea that gets to be discussed and you hear that the person that made the soundbite actually might be really diverse in their opinion, but somebody took a soundbite out of what they said and painted them as this like hardcore extremist or advocate. And it's like, oh, if you listen to what they actually said, they actually said, but also A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know? Um, So that's why myself, I'm really not a big part of social media anymore. It really helped get me going in the beginning. But as I've sort of progressed, the more and more that I sort of steer clear of it personally, because it's just, yeah, it's so easy to get sucked into that world. And I'd be lying if I didn't, if, if I said that I didn't, you know, absorb some of those sound bites and change behavior as well in the past. So, you know, we're all human. 
Yeah, that actually was one of the transitions we kind of made too. We were both very focused on social media. And as the content got shorter and shorter and the captions got shorter and the reels got down to nine seconds, I think both Natalie and I felt like we was losing part of our voice and part of our message and really loving the podcast space. I mean, you know, on Discover Ag, we're able to kind of dive a little bit deeper and actually spend some time in a conversation instead of being just jumping from one thing to the next. And in so many instances, it's needed in the food conversation to really have some actual meaningful, nuanced conversation about what's going on. It's just not a black and white system. It's it's not black and white practices on farm and take some time having some conversation. So in order to begin that conversation, what are some of the big like mainstream beliefs that you see time and time again where you arrive in a new community or at a new event where you're going to speak and Somebody has that belief and you're like, how does, how do people still think that? Like you just sort of, that really gets under your skin that you're like, I don't even know how people can still believe that that's the case. What are some of the big ones? Yeah. I mean, I feel like for me, sometimes when I think about the fact that there are like people who think that cattle are killing the planet, I'm not going to lie. I think like, how did we get here? Like, how did we truly believe that like something that has been around for, you know, thousands of years and been a part of our diet for just as long could be like the root of you know, the issues that we're facing right now with um, climate. And so that for me is definitely a big one. And when you really like kind of peel back the layers, I think it is an onion, you know, I think a lot of times in the world that we live in, we get carbon tunnel vision. That's just like, what is the carbon emissions? What is the carbon footprint of something? Let's compare it to the carbon footprint of something else. And really like it is it's an onion. It's so much more complex than that. Um, and I think that's exactly cattle. Cattle can be painted with a broad stroke of cattle of carbon emissions when reality, you know, just now I, w- I just got done reading a report about like the economic benefits in rural and poverty, uh, impoverished communities, um, about how dairy can have sub- such an impact. Like that doesn't, enter the conversation when we talk about carbon. Uh, certainly the nutrient density of foods doesn't enter the conversation when we're talking about carbon footprint. And I think those are some of the conversations we need to be having, you know, more of. Yeah, I always think it's concerning when the main people that you hear about a problem from are politicians. <laughs> you know, it's like, it sounds like, the, you know, very much the climate change conversation and, you know, whether we're blaming farming or we're blaming, um, you know, um, combustion engines, whatever it is, it's like, I'm only ever hearing about this from a politician, which always makes me think, oh, there's a, I'm going to take a very large grain of salt with that information. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so I guess on... On on these farms where things are happening, you know, in a different way to it that is being advertised or marketed to, do you think that the communication between that industry about some of these misconceptions is possibly the responsibility of the farming industry not representing themselves correctly? Or is it small groups like your vegans, for instance, that get in there and deliberately mess with the message? Um, great question. I actually think it's a combination of both. Um, and it's, um, you know, that's ultimately how we got here is that a lot of hands played a role in it. Um, I've always said that ag doesn't have a product problem. We have a marketing problem. Mm -hmm. You know, we have, by golly, we have figured out the perfect product that every single person needs and they actually need it three times a day. You know, like we have the perfect product for people. Um, but yeah, somewhere along the way, I do think we kind of lost sight of how to properly market ourselves, or maybe we didn't even think we needed to market ourselves, And so we got behind on actually marketing ourselves and having these conversations. Uh, so I think there's a lot of fault that could lie with our industry about how we need to have more conversations. We need to be, um, be a little more transparent or, you know, like meet people a little bit differently and just do things differently than we were doing 
doing, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Um, on the same hand, I do think there, as you mentioned, have been organizations or groups that have, you know, maybe capitalized off that or twisted words or inserted themselves into conversations or intentionally created documentaries like Cowspiracy to kind of drive yeah. the conversation in different ways. And so um, I think there's a lot of, um, I guess, transgressions that have taken place to ultimately get to get us to where we are right now in this place of, um, you know, people really being disconnected from food. And part of that was just us moving away from food production, right? Like as modern uh, technology and uh, just as we progressed as society, we have become further and further removed. I mean, we used to have you know, 20, 30 years ago, you probably had at least one relative that, you know, had a farm that you could go visit to. And now we're just completely disconnected. And so I think that's also a role that has kind of played um, is that the consumers are just in a place where they don't have that um, like personal connection anymore or that uh, information to come from a trusted source. And so they're taking like all of this almost viral overload and trying to make sense of it on their own. And it's um, obviously... Um, I sympathize for them because that is like a challenge in and of itself, especially with, you know, us probably not marketing ourselves, and then organizations taking advantage of that. I think there's one other person kind of at fault too, is we forget about the middleman, the person, you know, the food companies that are, their job is to market themselves and mm -hmm. make a profit, right? Like, and so they are taking what farmers are doing, figuring out how to put a spin on it or whatever it is, put a label on it, which we can get into labels. That is a whole like soapbox for Natalie and I of a conversation, but they also, you know, they're, they're, spinning things, they're spinning food and marketing in a certain way to appeal to consumers that I think has ultimately led consumers to be more confused than ever before about what different food things mean, what different food practices, farming practices, um, what they actually stand for and what they mean for their food system. Yeah, it's like the the more, you know, we got people that are busier and busier and busier and got more kids and more jobs and more responsibilities. And then we go to the supermarket and we ba basically have to do algebra and physics to figure out what we're actually going to buy and eat, right? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And, and um, we're not immune to that either as producers. I can, you know, I'm blessed enough that we obviously harvest our own beef. And so I don't spend a ton of time in the grocery store meat aisles. Um, but I do consume other animal proteins. And so I can remember like six months ago, I stepped into the foot um, aisle of um, the chicken aisle. And it was actually, I was in a larger city in Nebraska. So I was down in Omaha. So it was like a Whole Foods. So there was like a plethora of options. Like, like it wasn't like a small town grocery meat aisle. Like this was, you know, a very large grocery store meat aisle. And I was so overwhelmed. And there were labels on the chicken that I did not know as, I mean, I'm in beef production. So like, I don't know a ton about chicken production. And I like, I just paused me in my tracks. And I remember thinking, gosh, if I feel this way and I am in agriculture, I can only imagine how consumers feel when they are so far removed from it. Yeah. And as well, I guess all of the added flavors and different things because they, you know, they slightly prepare a lot of the meat these days as well. And so it's like beside the, the chicken, then there's all of the, you know, ingredient number four, seven, six and flavor number, you know, and, the, and then you've got to contend with, well, what do they mean? What studies are they related to? And a lot, a lot of some of like some of those flavors are related to behavior change and kids' brains and, um, you know, and sort of stagnating growth and development and which is ultra concerning if it's not, you know, I always say anything in a bag, a box or a can, get rid of it. <laughs> That's the general, general guide to sort of stay, you know, healthy, whole, real food. But Natalie, I'm curious, we're talking to Tara just then obviously was sharing that, you know, cows causing the destruction of the planet is a bit of the myth that she's often con confronted with as kind of like, how are we still here? What's the big one for you that you find is uh, in that space for you? 
Yeah. I think maybe the narrative around like factory farms is still hard for me, um, to kind of grapple with. I think, um, that has been a term that has been thrown around quite a bit, um, and obviously means different things to different people. Um, but you know, statistics show at least here in the States, um, you know, agriculture is predominantly family owned and operated. I think it's like over 90%. Um, and no matter like how often we say that or how often we show that, um, and it, you know, it's truth in, in the data, um, people still run with the idea of factory farms and that, um, food production is, I mean, I don't know, I guess what they, what they think is behind food production, but I always just wonder, I'm like, how did we lose sight of the point that the, like behind every piece of food is a family that was growing it on the farms? Yeah. Actually, what I'd love to do is can we just unpack that idea of factory farming? Um, because even, even as a nutritionist, even at university, we get you know, you, given that language as like what's bad and what's good and it's like grass-fed organic versus factory farming. And obviously there's a, like the quality of any product in the world. There's a diversity across the board of really, really good and really caring farmers and amazing machinery and equipment that looks after animal welfare all the way down to, you know, people that don't care that are run by corporations and they're enslaving their populations probably in different countries around the world in order to work. So can we just unpack, you know, what, what is a factory farm and what do most people think a factory farm is and what it consists of? Yeah, I love how you said that, the diversity, because Natalie and I always talk about how farming is such a spectrum, you know, spectrum from all sorts of things, all the different practices from regen to sustainable to organic to conventional. Like just because you're conventional and big doesn't mean you're bad. Just because you're organic and small doesn't mean you're great, right? Like there is a whole spectrum. And and I would say the majority of farmers out there, no matter their size or what type of farm they are, are doing the best for their farm, their land and their cattle, right? Like trying to move their operation forward, carry it on to the next generation of farmers. And so for me, factory farming, like I feel like by probably a lot of activist standards, they'd probably put my family farm under a factory farm just because we're a larger sized farm. Um, but really in my mind, it's like, we just have more family members that work for the farm. We have more employees, like it just provides for more people. Um, and my backyard is our close-up cows that are, you know, delivering calves um, or going in to be milked. And so um, it just, it always kind of like Natalie said, like kind of rattles me that I'm like, what exactly in your mind does factory mean? And like, is it a certain number? Is it like, what does that fall into? Um, because as a larger producer, we are still 100% family owned and operated, live right here on our farm, like take great pride in what we're doing and caring for our cattle. I mean, I always love to use the example and this probably goes back to like my environmental science roots. Like we drink the same exact water in our house as what goes to our cows water troughs. Like you're telling me I don't care about the quality of our water and our natural resources and how we're caring for our soil. Like I live right here on this farm. Um, and so that one is a really difficult one for me to really have conversations because people feel so passionately about it. They hear the word CAFO or confined, you know, confined animals. Like, yes, our animals are out in pens, but like I would invite, you know, we do invite people out to our farm to see it. Um, and I think they're always like blown away with, you know, how how cool it is and the technology that's being used. And like you said, the equipment that's going into this um, and everything that goes behind, you know, really producing a nutritious product for us, that's, you know, milk and cheese. Um, and for Natalie, obviously that's beef. And so it is, um, it's an interesting conversation to have with people. And it, it just depends on, I think where they're like, 
uh, viewpoints are rooted or what they've seen. You mentioned that there's obviously like diff- videos out there online from like different countries and, and different companies. And a lot of times it goes back to that same thing I said, it's painted with a broad stroke that like, oh, everyone over a certain size, this is what they look like when they're not even taking into account any of the other factors that that may be there. Yeah, I've got a friend here in Australia who I absolutely have to hook you up with. Um, His name's Regen Ray. He's basically an advocate for regenerative agriculture. Um, And he was talking about the idea um, on one of the podcasts that we've done here of doing farm crawls instead of pub crawls, um, (laughs) where... And that when you said that, Tara, about inviting people over, just this idea that, you know, people um, opening up their farms, allowing people to come through, and you would suspect that if you had something to hide or that you were doing something unethical, um, you know, that maybe that's a good means by which to sort of put your bullshit detector on, right? It's like, who's willing to open up their farm and who isn't? Um, I mean, obviously, that's then a whole nother project for the farmer to have to factor in, right? <laughs> which is the presentation of everything and the management of people on their property and public liability insurance and all that kind of stuff. But it's, I think it's a great idea. Oh, absolutely. I truly believe if we could get back to having those connections to the, the farms itself um, and the farmers on them, we would have, you know, as we alluded at the beginning of this, we'd have less of that fear around our food, misinformation around our food, and just feel a lot more comfortable walking into the grocery stores. And I think that's why Tara and I share online and why we do our podcast is because, um, you know, in our mini way, our, you know, social media is our pub crawl. It's like, hey, come along with a Nebraska cattle rancher. Like, hey, come along with a New Mexico dairy farmer. Um, and here's, all, you know, our, it's just our individual operations, but a lot of things we do some of it's different than other farms and ranches because, you know, they're not copy, stamp, repeat, but a lot of it's also the same as what's going on in our neighbor farms. So if you feel comfortable with, you know, the way we're raising cattle, I can guarantee you that you probably feel very comfortable with the way like the average, you know, other American ranchers and farmers are producing cattle too. On the note of cattle, um, have you ever come across vegan protesters aiming themselves at you? Me specifically? Oh, both of you. Have you experienced that at all? Uh, not in real life. Um, and I will say Tara has definitely had more online run-ins than I have. Um, I am fortunate enough to ranch in a really beautiful area of Nebraska. It's called the Nebraska Sandhills and it is a very lush, uh, rolling grasslands, green hills. It's a, it's, I think actually the world's largest still intact ecosystem. So it's pretty awesome, um, visually to get to show off. And so, you know, I am fortunate enough to get to show cattle, you know, out at pasture and grazing and get to talk about all those things that like a ruminant animal can do for the environment when they're integrated into it. Um, and so I think there are, you know, Tara has maybe a little different perspective as, as she alluded to, um, her cattle are, you know, dairy being in confinement. Um, but I have had my still fair share of people who don't, you know, will they're likely never going to agree with what I have to say. And so no matter what I said, it would cause conflict with them um, because they just don't like some of the stacks of stat, stats I have like, you know, presented and shared online or the perspective um, and conversation, but overwhelmingly very positive. But yeah, I've had a few run-ins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've definitely had more than <laughs> Natalie, I would say, as she alluded to. Um, I do think pe- the cows being in pens is maybe harder for people to understand. I think dairy overall gets a little bit more hate online than maybe some of our other animal protein counterparts um, for lots of dif- different reasons. Um, and then as far as in real life, thankfully, I have not. But it has been, um, you know, we obviously have animal activist groups out there that are actively, you know, proactively trying to get video of certain things. And it's 
always a concern for my husband and I as we are sharing online and just something we take into consideration, definitely. Um, but thankfully, I have not had an, any encounters on our farm, but plenty online. I feel like it's part of the territory. And it's yeah. something that I took a lot harder when I first started sharing. And now I um, feel like I've gotten a little tougher skin over the last several <laughs> years. I could totally relate to that. I was, uh, yeah, in the beginning of my journey as well, sort of really pushing back against vegans for a while there. But I'm curious to play devil, devil's advocate. Do you think the the vegan movement or the plant based movement movement, or which is you know embedded in the idea of the animal welfare and what people think are happening on every farm? Obviously, it's happening on some farms, not every farm. But do you think? That push from that community and the public awareness of it has been a good thing for animal welfare across the board. Because obviously, you've got the farmers that were already doing the right thing. But do you think that's leveled up other farmers? You know, that's such an interesting conversation. I've had it a couple times. And I don't know that it's necessarily like vegan activists that have pushed animal welfare forward. I do think animal welfare right now is better than it ever has been. And I probably will say that again in 10 years because I think we are continuing to improve. I think it's a combination of factors. I was actually once talking with a man who trimmed hooves for cattle, for dairy cattle. And he was discussing how um, it was a researcher at a university had kind of made some changes in suggestions of how we should trim cows hooves and how we should keep cows together as they're going through a shoot. And his idea was kind of like, if people hadn't pushed back, would we maybe not have done that research? We, and he was like, my job is now easier because of this new research and like the cattle are more comfortable. And so I, I think it's probably, I, I don't think I can give that much credit to vegan activists, but I think it's the combination, right? Of the more conversations you have, uh, the more research being done, the, the more you're learning. And, and I think a lot of um, animal welfare even goes into genetics, you know, and different things that we're able to improve in our cow's genetics. Uh, so I think it's a lot of different factors, but I do think it is really cool to see, you know, even just in my lifetime of where we've been and, and where I think we're headed, um, that animal welfare, you know, is pretty incredible. I mean, I, Natalie and I always talk about how like our cows have a nutritionist that plans their diets. You know, I know as a person, that's not always possible, like for every person to have a nutritionist. Um, and so I do think there's some really cool things we're doing in that space. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. 
Yeah, I'm wondering if you think as well that the idea of, you know, the progression of nutrition information and the way in which we, I guess, communicate about these foods, we've been desensitized in the sense, not just about the, you know, the sort of farm to plate and all of the steps in there, because these days, of course, there's major food corporations and factories that the food then goes to, to be adulterated, not by the farmer, but the food, you know, another section of the food industry. But I'm curious if you think as well that, our relationship with death as a Western culture has has become too disconnected. Like all living things die, right? And that's just part of the cycle of life. And I remember Joe Rogan talking about the idea that, you know, vegans think possibly, um, or, or people that are really into animal welfare think that in nature, a bear just casually walks up to a moose and says, do you mind passing away right now? When actually, if you watch that interaction in a video, it's one of the most horrific things you'll ever see, nature being nature, right? And so this idea that, you know, we should let things die naturally and, and, and is sort of this illusion that actually death in nature is often super savage and drawn out and painful but actually the way that we can do it in farming is one it's going to feed you know the humans in your household and everybody you know and that type of thing but it's actually a far more delicate and managed process of that animal moving on yeah absolutely i think this is a huge component and one that often isn't talked about enough and i think to pair with that another thing we have done as a society is really like um give humanistic traits to animals too whether it's like through cartoons you're watching as you're growing up or books you're reading you know all these things we have done to like you said remove ourselves from like the death and the cycle of life and then also um make animals appear more human-like and it's like put us at this like ultimate like nexus of these things to combine where it's like, Oh no, we cannot like, you know, animals are friends. They're not food. It's like the finding Nemo when it's like, you know, fish are friends, not food. Um, (laughs) and yeah, it is. I mean, Tara will say one of her favorite graphic cartoons is like a deer or it's like how vegans think, you know, animals pass away and it's like a deer laying on, you know, like a hospital bed and it's like all this family surrounding him and stuff. Um, and you're absolutely right. Like nature is very, gruesome. And I think this is actually um, a stance a lot of hunters have conversations on. And I think this is actually something that sometimes as people move through their understanding and connection of the food system, they'll move through this thought process through hunting and realize, um, you know, like, as you mentioned, that like death is actually nourishing and it's feeding us, whether it's feeding humans or feeding the soil, like it's part of this ultimate circle that we as ranchers and farmers are exposed to every single day from, you know, the moment we're born. I mean, my children have or understand this and are part of this, but something that, you know, the average consumer isn't. And I think it's a big problem. Yeah. I, my oldest daughter is very into the dairy farming going out with my husband. She's doctored a few cows and she's seen them pass. Like there's been multiple times where she has seen and experienced death on the dairy farm. And we've had to have some talks with her because she would go back to school and then share with the classroom who was not ready to have the classroom like show and tell be like her talking about a cow she doctored that ultimately didn't make it. And, you know, they had called the vet out or all the whole thing. And she was very like pragmatic about it. And it was difficult conversation, obviously, for the teacher and the students who didn't, weren't exposed to that. And so I do think it's like a piece of our society that we are losing. And I actually always say that there's a a vegan line that like, if everyone had to butcher their own animals, no one would. And I have to laugh at that because, you know, a hundred years ago when every person butchered their own animals, they did, they did butcher their own animals and had no problem with it. Um, and really understood like the concept of like life giving life and that we are eating, you know, something that gave its life for us. And I think we are absolutely missing that piece now because of this removal from 
agriculture. And I, I, as Natalie said, it's not something we talk about enough. And I don't know necessarily how we fix that or like move forward because it's not like we can bring people out and have them like experience that every single day. And so to really get over, like to have those conversations, it's going to be difficult and um, not enough of these conversations are being had. Surely the way to do that though, with, you know, how populated we are and cities getting bigger is going to be, it has to be a part of the education system um, for kids at a young age. And, and I guess like Natalie said, you know, maybe moving away from that idea of humanizing animals um, and because I mean, you know, arguably, if we're moving in a direction of, you know, governments pushing the plant-based movement and impossible burgers and beyond burgers in our restaurants, the population is going to be really, really unhealthy. If we weren't already, we're going to be so incredibly protein deficient, which I think people already are. And so, you know, instead of indoctrinating kids at a young age to humanize animals and, you know, think that killing is bad, maybe there's something that's built into the system somewhere and um you know you, you probably have a better idea than i i don't have I have kids but as to how we can expose kids that aren't near farms to this idea yeah absolutely i do think we need more ag education in the classroom i think it's a little easier said than done unfortunately as you mentioned we have a lot of movements i know here in the united states you know we have meatless monday we have vegan fridays in our public school system which is really concerning for kids um it feels like we're running kind of like a nutritional experiment on our children of not giving them access to meat um, animal proteins on mondays and fridays and for uh, lower income families that may already have kids struggling to get the right nutritional on Saturday and Sunday, now you've given them four days of access to maybe less nutrient-dense foods, which is very unfortunate. And so I think it's going to be something we have to combat very actively because if we're having those pushes for those kind of like meatless days, um, it definitely brings a challenge to the conversation of having toxin and education around what it means to have animal protein in the diet. I'm curious, what do you think or maybe you know, um, what do you think the big push by Western governments is about the plant movement? What do you think is behind it? And I ask that question because the USA, Australia, like the UK and many countries around the world, a major part of their economy is import and export and consumption of these animal products, right? These animal proteins. So it's kind of a confusing um, thing in my mind that the government is, seems to be nutritionally also in the medical industry pushing this plant-based movement. And I'm like, you earn billions of dollars from this other thing, practice that's been here for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, the dairy um, impact on just the U.S. economy, just dairy, is almost $800 billion. (laughs) It's not like chum change. It's like a significant amount that doesn't even include beef and, you know, exports and all the things that we're doing um, around the globe. Um, So it is an interesting conversation. I think there is this idea that plant-based means it's like a small business or it's like small farm or it's organic farm. And I think people are really misled when they, you know, start looking into, you know, you talked about like the multinational companies that own a majority of our food. I mean, there is like eight companies that own the majority of our foods on the shelf um, and that package them. And so I do think, I mean, in my mind, and maybe this is cynical of me, I mean, some of it's going to go back to money, right? If you're able to market and brand a new product and you're able to sell something like there is money to be made there for companies. And, And I don't say that necessarily as like cynical or that I think, you know, companies are necessarily like out to like kill us through nutrition. Um, I just think it's kind of the fact that they're able to make money off of highly, you know, these more processed 
alternative proteins. And then there's going to be obviously a trickle down effect of like lobbying efforts and all these other things that are going to influence um, our political conversation around what type of food we're feeding in public schools and hospitals in all of these, you know, public run and publicly funded institutions. I'm curious, what is your opinion on regenerative agriculture versus sort of where maybe both of you are at? And because that's a big conversation now. And so in the same way that people in the sort of general public are misled in regards to, you know, what's in their meat, what's in their milk, what's at the supermarket, then there's sort of, you have the same experience in the health and wellness on the other end of the spectrum, right? Is that as soon as you hear the word regen, it's like, oh, it must be literally a gift from God, basically. You know, it was made by unicorns, (laughs) basically. So I'm curious what your opinion is of the regen movement. Is it all that it's cracked up to be in your eyes? Yeah, this is a really loaded question. And I feel like one and Tara and I kind of work through continuously about um, our thoughts on it, how we want to communicate it to, you know, people outside the industry, Um, because it is really complex. And I think we're used to dealing with labels in, you know, being farmers and ranchers, but I don't think to the extent we are now, like realizing, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, my dad, I don't think he had to worry about, you know, regenerative versus conventional and organic versus, you know, all these different, um, labels again, for lack of better, I mean, you know, to repeat the same word over and over again, I guess. Um, and so I think it's interesting as farmers, I think we're trying to kind of grapple with like what this means for us and, and how we market ourselves and how we present ourselves to consumers. Um, when it comes to regenerative, I have very mixed feelings about it because on one hand, um, I absolutely believe in the practices of regenerative agriculture. Um, We implement a lot of them on our own ranch. You know, I could give you a laundry list of things we do that fall under, you know, quote unquote, regenerative agriculture, you know, cover crops, no tilling, rotational grazing. Uh, We work really extensively with our NRCS, which is like our um, resource conservation center. Um, You know, we plant butterfly habitats. I mean, we do so many things on our operation that are actually, you know, quote unquote, regenerative. Um, But I asked my husband the other day, I was like, you know, if someone asked you if you're a regenerative farmer, would you say you're a regenerative farmer? And he was like, no, like kind of confused by it, you know? Um, And so I think it's really interesting that some branches, uh, farmers are really like attaching themselves to that label and and calling themselves that. And again, almost like really making it a part of their like operations identity. And other ones are like, you know, call me whatever you want. I'm going to do what's best for, you know, our land, our animals and our soil. And I think it's put us in kind of this unique position in agriculture where now we're almost combating against each other, like regenerative versus conventional. And that's not what agriculture is, at least to me and my, my eyes, you know, I think Tara and I said this at the beginning, it's very much so a spectrum. Um, and I think as Tara said, there could be an operation that's quote unquote conventional, but doing really regenerative practices. And so I think, um, for consumers to, like you said, see the regenerative label and think, oh, this is the answer. This is the only food I can buy. This is the best food I can buy. Um, and if you're not buying this food, like shame on you, you need to be sourcing quote unquote regenerative ranches. I just don't subscribe to that. I think there is a lot of good food out there that would not fall under the label of that. And so again, I'm kind of, I guess, a little bit fearful that we're going to find ourselves with the regenerative label, the same place we have found ourselves with a lot of other labels, which is like essentially it turned into no, nothing clear for the consumer to understand. Um, nothing, you know, not same from farm to farm and ranch to ranch and really just a, another new marketing tactic for uh, essentially, you know, the eight Ford Cooper food corporations to use to get their product to be bought by consumers. And so while I, again, on one hand, like love it and promote it and, you know, want um, all of my fellow, you know, agriculturists to be using regenerative practices. I'm also very feel to be like, okay, let's all call ourselves regenerative now. 
<laughs> it makes me think of like all of the diet iterations that have happened and then slowly marketing companies have hijacked them, right? It's like vegan and it's like, oh, Oreos are vegan. Amazing. They must be good <laughs> for you. Um, or it might, Absolutely. Be, it might be like something that's paleo and it's like, well, the sugar grew in the ground, so have as much as you like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I am always fearful of is I would hate for a consumer to go in the grocery store and say, I cannot afford the regenerative grass fed, grass finished beef or dairy or whatever it is and choose something else. And ultimately maybe pick a less nutrient dense product or a less, you know, nutrient packed. I mean, at the end of the day, the conventional beef on the shelf is safe. It may be with what's in your budget and it's also nutritious. Like I personally buy conventional plain old dairy, the cheapest one on the shelf for my family as a dairy farmer. I feel absolutely confident about that decision for my family, knowing exactly what goes into it. And so that's what's in my budget. That's what makes sense for my family. And so I just like, I would hate for people to have seen something on the internet or think, I can't afford the $20 gallon of raw milk grass fed. And so then they don't choose anything. To me, that's the worst outcome. And I think that's where I get really nervous with these labels is when it makes people question not buying something at all um, versus just deciding what's actually best for their family, maybe for their nutrition. I mean, every single person, I feel like their nutrition, their diet, what works for them is different on such a scale. Like what works for one person doesn't work for another. And so just like making people turn off of a whole food group because of like that fear. Or like on the opposite end of spectrum, like buying for the label. Like I think an Mm. absolute very realistic situation is you could have someone walk into the grocery store. And if this is you tuning in, like (laughs) I am not pointing a finger at you, you know, but um, I think there are people who would think that the organic granola bar is a better option to put in the grocery store than, as Tara said, maybe like the conventional grain-fed beef. Like just because it had that organic label on it when we know absolutely that like if we broke it down, you know, beef is like one of the the most nutrient dense things you can put in your body. And so we're having those people that are choosing, you know, some of those um, more processed foods that carry those, you know, non-GMO, all natural, organic on the box. And people feel like, oh, great. This is like, this is healthy for me. This is what I should be doing. And then like steering away from kind of those, oh, that big, bad, you know, conventional grain fed beef that's going to like, you know, slowly kill my system because the cattle got, you know, corn. Yeah, like it makes me think of like if I can't afford the $100 steak at the luxury restaurant, then I'm just going to go straight to McDonald's. And it's like, well, <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's a few things in the middle of the spectrum there that are actually just fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's crazy. We live, um, not to keep going on this, but we live, I feel like, in a society that is almost um, polar extremes in everything. It's like, uh, you know, before it was vegan and now it's carnivore. Um, you know, it's like there is no in between anymore. I mean, I feel like there are studies that show the more um, like um, the more negative emotions you can invoke in people, the more viral your content will be. And so I feel like we have this proposition where we are putting things on like far end of the spectrums just to kind of like make a point or get our content to go viral. And it's like really having like actual effects that I don't think people are realizing in their everyday lives. Yeah, it's it's interesting with the language that's progressed over time. I had a, had a Facebook post recently where I said, we're in a world where when you learn new words, like big words, and you use them, everybody thinks you're an idiot and a show off and you're an arrogant douche because you're using this amazing language. But marketing has made us so simple that like we just need the most triggering, most basic word to be able to communicate. It's like, never again, super toxic, 
deadly, you know, these kind of words <laughs> that are slapped onto four or five words that are seen on an ad or seen at the start of a, you know, podcast interview or whatever it is to try and elicit these responses when actually the English language has an extremely deep array of words that convey probably much more clearly what's going on. But it's like, ah, that's too complicated. We have to think too much. We have to spend five more calories figuring that out in our brain. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I guess for people that are going to the supermarket, listening to this episode that are, you know, normal families, uh, you know, not able to get to a farm or check it out, like what are the takeaways for them from here so that they can feel better about what to buy in the supermarket, what to look for, what to steer clear of? Yeah. So I think our big thing, like we talk about this a lot on Discover, um, our podcast is like food choice. Uh, we are both yep. big advocates for food choice and making, you know, a decision that makes sense for your family. As I said, you know, I personally choose conventional milk. Um, a lot of times I think people misunderstand organic and conventional, you know, organic is about farming practices, not necessarily a nutrition label. There are very slight nutritional differences in organic versus conventional or grass fed, grass finished milk versus conventional. Um, but when you really look at the overall nutrition profile, it's pretty insignificant. I mean, you're getting pretty similar amounts of fat, depending obviously what kind of milk you're buying, um, protein, those kind of things. Um, and then, you know, it's similar over on the beef side as well. So in my mind, it really comes down to, um, there's a quote that I love that I heard a few months back that it's like, tell me your values and I'll tell you what to, to buy. Like there are different things that every product offers that is better. So take a look into what it actually means, what those labels actually mean, um, and then make your decisions kind of based off of like what you truly care about. Yeah, T Tara stole my answer when she gave that quote because it's one of my favorites. Um, and I think that's not used often. I think sometimes we push our personal food system belief onto someone else who maybe doesn't have that same care or belief that we do. And so that's what I advocate for. I advocate for understanding what's most important for you and then shopping to fulfill that. So if you know price and budget is most important for you, then do your research to find the one that's going to fit your budget. If it is nutrition, then learn to read the label so that you can make, you know, a nutritious choice, not um, like Tara said, maybe one that you're thinking is nutritious, but you're not really getting the more nutritious product. If it's an environmental standpoint you want to take, well then, you know, look for the labels that elicit that, which gets me to my next thing that I really truly believe, and this may be controversial for some people, but I really believe if you care, you know, um, that deeply about your food, you know, if you want to get the most, um, I don't want to say nutritious product, but you want to know the most about your food. Like you want to have a very intimate connection to it. You really want to understand it, the practices that were behind it. You know, you want to have that true, deep understanding, that connection with your food. Then I would try your utmost hardest to find a local farmer rancher to, you know, buy your meat from, to go to the farmer's market, to choose to make that form of purchase. Otherwise, I feel like if you go into the grocery store, I wouldn't pay super attention to the labels that are in there when it comes at least to beef and dairy, because I feel like, you know, one meat that has all natural on it, which isn't even like, I don't think that's even FDA regulated, um, might be $3 more than the package next to it and doesn't mean anything. You know, there, I saw a beef label the other day that said like humanely raised, like that's not regulated. I don't even know what that means. Like it, you're going to slap more, you know, that on there and charge more money for it. So I feel like if you're walking to the grocery store, you can pretty much, um, you know, I mean, there are a difference between a few labels, but for the most part, like I wouldn't spend a ton of time trying to understand those grocery store labels. If you want to, I would go the route of like buying directly from a farmer and rancher. 
I was just about to bring that up. So you totally read my mind because that's becoming more and more popular is, you know, getting the box of meat from the farm delivered to your house. Um, And, you know, there's, especially here in Australia, that's becoming very, it's kind of in that stage where it seems like it's a bit of a fad. People are realizing that they can fill the freezer for two, three, four weeks in one hit. It's a little bit cheaper. It's there, it's available. And it's, yeah, it's coming direct um, from the farm or at least, you know, where they um, butcher it. And so you, I think that, that for me, in my mind, is a better system for, as a consumer because then I know that, you know, this giant factory in China <laughs> hasn't taken over the, the management of this product and done whatever to it or wherever the location is. I'm just picking China, but, you know, and, and done we whatever. We to pick on China. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Um, but, you know, put all of these other things into it, maybe stored it in a way that might not be ideal, stored it in chemicals that might not be ideal, whatever the thing is, you know, um, and then obviously ends up in the supermarket with these labels that have got all this information and these scientific words, which most people can't interpret. It's like, what does that mean? Should I care about that? I don't know. I'm going to buy it anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And so for me, I I really like that idea of it coming straight to my door because the more men in the middle that I can remove, which is obviously not great for employment opportunities, but I'm happy about that for my nutrition intake. Right. Yeah. And good news is it is easier now than ever. I mean, it's, there's still barriers to this, but you know, historically looking back, it is easier now than ever to find a local farm and ranch to buy from. There are a lot of direct to consumer, um, operations online. Like you don't even have to like live near one anymore. You can go online, Google one and buy from them. So, um, I do advocate that for people who, you know, have the means and funds and the interest to do that. I think it's a really great option. Otherwise, like we've kind of talked about, you can just totally stress yourself out over no reason over grocery store labels. And so I think as long as, again, my personal belief, as long as you're sticking to whole foods, I just don't know if you need to spend the extra dollars for certain labels that probably don't mean anything in the end of the, you know, the end of it. Yeah, I remember realizing years ago when I did an assignment at uni on Coca-Cola. Hopefully they don't censor this episode now. Um, But basically, I discovered that Coca-Cola owned the cheap home brand version of cola Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and the ingredients were the same. (laughs) And there was about, you know, two or $3 difference in the two liter bottle. Um, And uh, that was one of the moments early on in sort of my journey in health and wellness that I was like, I realized, because I always remember that graphic, you know, you've referred a couple of times, Natalie, to the the eight companies that own everything. And Mm -hmm. I think, I think it's, I think there's nine or nine or 10 here that own every single brand. Um, and many of those brands have pretty similar ingredient lists. It's just mm-hmm. the, the colors, the branding, the, you know, the design, the font that attracts a different type of person or, or a different type of budget. Yeah, I saw or I was listening to a podcast the other day that was talking about this and they mentioned some like natural fruit juice, something that is clearly marketed as like, you know, a superfoods and like amazing. And it was owned by like, I think it was PepsiCo. And so we'll pick on PepsiCo for a while instead of Coca-Cola. But uh, <laughs> the person was like, no, it can't be like, it's a small company and it's healthy and it's all natural products. And, you know, all the things that we've been talking about. And it was like, no, it's owned by the same company as Pepsi. I mean, not that it's the same ingredients, but I mean, at its root, like, I mean, it there it's a marketing like they're they're trying to market you a product and whether that is marketing you soda or marketing you like what they're claiming is you know a health drink like that's what they're doing and it's a lot owned by the same company and so it is kind of wild when you really like dive into uh those food companies 
There's one of my favorite accounts on TikTok. It's a guy who actually takes like um, at their root, you know, very unhealthy foods, like a package of M&Ms, let's say. We'll pick on M&Ms now. Um, and then he walks you through, it's like usually a two minute or three minute video um, of how he would label it and market it to position it as a like healthy product. And it is crazy the things that he'll put on there, like low trans fat or, you know, like no sodium, like all, you know, all natural, no dye, like all of these things that at the end of it, it's like, People would probably buy that thinking they're getting like the healthy version of a Reese's and they just, it's Reese's just with like a few labels slapped onto it. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. I can't think of his name or I'd share him so everyone could go watch. But if, if you're scrolling and the guy pops up and he's holding something and he's talking about rebranding it, pause for a few minutes and devote your time because you can see the greenwashing literally happening before your eyes. Yeah, I'm going looking for that. That sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So you're obviously both um, incredible humans and you're doing great work and I really love this conversation. So thank you for taking the time to have it with me. Um, But for everybody listening that wants to get into your world, jump on the podcast, where can everybody find you online? Yeah, well, if you're listening to this, you're obviously like a podcast person. So we'd love if you would jump over when finishing this and give our podcast Discover Ag a listen. Every single week, we cover the top three trending news articles in the ag and food space. And we definitely have some fun with it. Um, we obviously bring in food and farming, but we also bring in some pop culture and just like relevant information that's going on in the world right now. Um, so give us a listen at Discover Ag. Amazing. And then you can follow both of us um, on social media is usually across a few of the different platforms under our name. So you could find Tara at Tara Vanderdusen and then me at Natalie Kavorik. I'm going to put all of those links down in the show notes below for everybody. So if you've enjoyed this episode, share it on social media, scroll down, connect with Tara and Natalie and get into their world because I've been in it all day and it's been amazing. Um, <laughs> and so a quick shout out to Pete Evans for the, being the person that connected us as well. I'm hopefully, hopefully catching up with him again uh, in the next couple of weeks, which is going to be good. Um, but to finish up, I would love one from both of you, but what is one piece of health information that you think more people need to know about? Okay, so mine's kind of twofold, but I think they go hand in hand. I um, wish I had known this at much younger age, but here I'm at almost 35, um, that trying to lift more weights and build muscle as quickly and as much as I can, especially before I feel like 40 is coming at me. And doing that by having um, at least 30 grams of animal protein per meal per day and a few extra like 10 snack. So getting pretty close, I feel like to 100, 110 grams of protein. It does not happen every day. But those two things, building muscle and getting more animal protein at every meal, um, the days that I do, it is just unbelievable how much better I feel and just stronger, healthier, like all of sleep better. I mean, really, like it's been very crucial for me. So that has been my one, my big change in the last couple of years. I didn't even have to pay you to say that. I say that (laughs) almost word for word to every client. (laughs) It's like a game changer. It was definitely a a nutritionist that uh, helped me like lay it out like that. I mean, I feel like I always as a dairy farmer and, you know, we obviously produce beef as well. Um, Natalie will say this. I've always planned my plate around animal protein, but just I don't know that I was like really, really making the effort um, that I am now. And it has, I mean, I start my day like, you know, I feel like I, as a woman, you know, you're always, I don't know, I feel like women especially get, you know, the deficient calories and things. I wake up and have 30 grams of protein without fail. And it is such a better way to live. (laughs) I love hearing that. 
I'll share another one that I think, uh, since I know you alluded to it very briefly earlier, I know it's one that you um, firmly believe in too, but I feel like we have always put so much emphasis on um, kind of what Tara said, eating right and working out when it comes to our health. And those have been kind of the two pillars that like the fundamentals have built on. And I feel like we have really lost our way from a society from the standpoint of like nature um, and how that plays a role in both our mental health and our physical health too. And so I think the more time you can spend out at nature, um, the better. I know I am a better person when I do. I'm thankful that my occupation allows for that. You know, like as a farmer rancher, I probably spend like 80% of my time outside. Um, But I just think we have so much lost our way of the importance of being immersed in nature Um, you know, seeing the sunrise, seeing the sunset, like getting fresh air, like all of those things that like you could spend all day inside and eat the best food and work out. But it's like at the end of the day, is that still like the utmost best for your health? Like, I feel like there's that missing piece. Yeah, I totally agree. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to getting this out to the people. And I think we should hang out again sometimes because there's going to be so many things I think we could talk about. Absolutely. We'd love that. Thanks for having us on and thanks for sharing um, our message with your community. So welcome. We'll catch you really soon. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much. And I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.